So welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites. I'm one of your hosts, Jim Fredericks, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brittany Campbell and Mike Bentley. We're joined today by our very special guest, Samantha Forrest from Brody Brothers Pest Control. Samantha, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be a part of this. Awesome. Before we dive into the today's news and, and pest control research, uh, we would love to learn a little bit more about uh, about yourself and and Brody Brothers. So so tell us about tell us about you. We'd love our listeners to learn more and uh, and about your role uh, with Brody Brothers. Awesome. Well, I have been with Brody Brothers now for nine years. Actually, just I just turned nine, as they like to keep joking. Yeah, this past uh, July third. So <laughs> I am now nine years old with Brody Brothers. Um, I am their second second longest employee. Um, there's one person who has been with us for almost 11 years now, and it's kind of crazy because when I started with them, he was one of three technicians on the road outside of our owners being on the road, and I have continuously watched him grow to someone who just said hello and goodbye to me, a very shy individual, to now being a supervisor and a large part of our team. <laughs> Yeah, it's super cool. Um, but yeah, so Brody Brothers, we're in Maryland. We're based in Maryland in Owens Mills. And we have, gosh, we've been around since 1984. Uh, we have just expanded into two new territories. So we're continuously growing. Like I mentioned, I started nine years ago with five technicians, half of which were owners out on the road. And now we have almost 50 technicians. We have almost eight office staff personnel. So it's literally like pushing a pedal to the floor and saying, okay, we're riding this car until it runs out of gas. <laughs> so we're having a blast over here. That is awesome. And I know that, um, and you and you and Brittany have worked on a number of different projects with NPMA, right? Yes, we have. We are heading the diversity council. So right now we're in the middle of creating a diversity, inclusion, and equality sort of toolbox for the pest control industry. So we're hoping to launch that. I'm hoping before pest world, <laughs> that's the goal. Um, and, you know, for myself as vice president and Joelle as president, we're really, I think, pushing the pedal to the metal with that as well with pushing diversity within our industry. Absolutely. And then Sam, I know we didn't even mention this aside from director of operations and how crazy you are with Brody brothers and all the volunteer stuff you do at NPMA, but you're also the current president of the Maryland Pest Control Association uh, as well, right? Yes, yes. See, I don't talk about myself very often, as you can see. I just, <laughs> yes, I volunteer for a lot of things. <laughs> no, I, I came from lawn care, which is, you know, gosh, 10 years ago. Um, and coming into pest control, it's one big, huge family. Everyone wants to help everyone out. So anytime I have a moment to be like, yeah, I'll take care of that. Yes, I volunteer for that. Of course, I'll do that. I'm all about it. So yes, aside from the Diversity Council with MPMA, I am president of the Maryland Pest Control Association. And oh my gosh, we're working on a ton of things. <laughs> I feel like that's just like such a, a distance in my brain of trying to hold on to that and make sure that everything is taken care of for them as well. It's kind of just a nutshell of my life within the pest control industry. 
Oh my gosh. You know, Sam, I was going to ask what you like to do in your free time, but between Maryland Pest Control Association, <laughs> Brody Brothers, your full-time job, MPMA, your other full-time job, um, childcare, everything else, it doesn't really sound like you have any free time. <laughs> you know, Brittany and I actually spoke about this yesterday on a call for the Diversity Council. And I said, you know, my spouse just bought me an iPad and I have decided that that is going to be the one thing I have that's unwork related aside from everything else. No email, no contacts on that. I'm just going to use it for listening to books, reading articles, and that is it. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, we really do um, appreciate people like you who are willing to reach out and volunteer and get involved because when, whether it's the state association or it's the national association, it really takes volunteers like you who are willing to sacrifice their time and devote their energy to make these associations better and in return, make the whole industry better. So thank you, Sam, for, uh, for all that work you're doing already. Yeah. We're a big family. You know, Brody brothers is family owned and operated and that, Oh, gosh, has always hold true to my heart is making sure that, you know, the company that I'm involved with is like a family and I'm that person, you know, I carry that. That's part of the integrity and morality that I have is to just be a helping hand wherever I can be. So I'm happy to be a part of this industry. I'm happy that I get to be included in this podcast and hang out with you guys for a little bit. Well, that's awesome. Um, now, one of the things, you know, I, I, maybe I, maybe it was ob an obvious ploy. I was trying to butter you up there a little bit, but it, uh, we, one of the things we do every week, and I think our, some of our listeners already know this, is we, um, you know, the, the point of this is to get to know um, leaders in the industry, but at the same time also help to uh, uh, disseminate new pest control research and information out to out to our listeners and so we do a little uh, a little game every week and i'm uh, and i'm hoping that mike's going to be able to explain that to you and uh and then we can get started and have a little bit of fun yeah so uh if you don't have any questions we'll get started now really quick i you know since both uh Brittany and sam work on a really important initiative if anybody that's listening would be interested in maybe hearing more about uh, the diversity initiative that you guys are taking on. Is there a place that they could reach out to, Brittany, maybe to you or, or to Sam? Where would be the best place if anyone's interested in finding more about that? Absolutely. So myself or Sam, so feel free to email me as the staff liaison to the Diversity Council, bcampbell at pestrel.org. You can also go to NPMA's website, and that is npmapestrel.org. And we do have a diversity page. Like Sam said, we're trying to add more resources to a toolkit uh, that everyone can find, but feel free to reach out to either of us if you have questions. Yeah, and my email is pretty simple. It's just sam, S-A-M, at brodybrothers.com. And you can reach out to me and I can put you in the right direction too. Awesome, well, thanks. And thanks for all the work you're doing this initiative. It's super important, so, all right. Time to get down to business. So what I'll do really quick is give you a very brief synopsis. Brief, oof, man, if this is how my, my, my summary is gonna go today, I'm in trouble. A brief synopsis, words are hard, of uh, kind of what you can expect for today's uh, test here in, in our game. Um, but if you have any questions, just let me know. So uh, I know that you said you've, you've listened to a couple episodes in the past, but essentially each one of us gets about five minutes to summarize what we would consider our favorite uh, news science-related article, uh, something usually from about the past month. 
Um, after we go through and we take about that five minute summary, if you have any questions, um, it could be specific to that or any, any general information that you want to know about for that topic, we'll pause and take any questions. Um, if you don't have any questions, we move on to the next person. All three of us get to go. Um, and then at the end of that, you get to make the determination of who you feel was the winner. The only uh, request that we have is you don't tell us who the people, uh, what order in which people place. We just want to know who won. We don't want to know who did the worst, the second worst or third worst. We are uh, very sensitive when it comes to that, apparently. Um, but uh, the way that we normally do this is whoever won last time goes first. Um, so that would be me. I uh, am the current reigning nerd champion, which means that both Brittany and Jim will have to uh, conduct a very intensive game of rock, paper, scissors to determine who is going to be the winner. Usually we take care of this before we record the episode, but we haven't done that yet. So uh, Jim and Brittany, this is going to be uh, for everybody to hear. Oh man, I need someone to like count me down because I never do this right. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> so and it's just a, as a reminder, it's one, two, three, shoot. So rock, paper, scissors, shoot on that cadence in that order. Okay. Make, okay? Make, make sure your hands are in the camera. Here. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Sam, you be the judge. If you see any shady business going on between either of these two, you, you let us know, okay? Absolutely. Okay. All right, here we go. You guys ready? Yep. Okay. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, Ooh. I did it first and he was able to cheat. I did I'm pretty it. sure that was a legit uh, loss there. Yeah, uh, Jim. yeah, Jim is the winner. So, so Jim, do you means... want to go second or third? I think I will choose the cleanup spot today. I Ooh. will go last. I hear that's a good spot to be in, right? It is. That third spot, the last person's like the last story in your head. So don't let it get to you, Sam. All right. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> That's okay. I, I'm, I'm fully prepared. As the winner from last time, I'm, I'm happy to pass on the crown if, if that's how it needs to go. So what we usually do is we always start off uh, with the title of the article and then we start the timer from there because sometimes these titles can be a little bit long. So unlike last month's episode, I'm actually going to be covering a uh, journal article this week. So uh, this specific, uh, specific publication uh, came out in ESA's Journal of Household and Structural Insects. It actually was published in June. So just very, very recently, it's last month. And the title of this article is Comparison of Diet Preferences of Laboratory Reared and Apartment Collected German Cockroaches. All right. So just like with humans, insects are known to modify their diet to regulate nutritional intake. That's because a balanced diet is key to optimal growth and development, as is pretty much the case for all living things. So when we talk about balanced diet with insects, though, we're usually focusing on a few specific macronutrients. That's proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Understanding these dietary preferences with pest insects like cockroaches and ants is actually what helps researchers to develop insecticidal baits, which, as we know, for both cockroaches and ants, have really revolutionized the control measures for both of these insects. So learning more about this can help us to continue to further advance that research. Now, we know that German cockroaches, or Blatella germanica, are generalist omnivores, meaning they eat pretty much anything you put in front of them, kind of like me. So, and German cockroaches are very well-studied pest insects, meaning that there have been a ton of research that's already been conducted looking at uh, their dietary preference. So we already know a lot about this. So for starters, we know that German cockroaches do try to find the right balance between protein and carbohydrates when they're looking at different food sources. 
and that we know that eating an imbalanced diet of uh, an imbalance between protein and carbohydrates can actually have negative developmental and lifespan effects on them. For example, eating too much protein could actually impact their developmental rate and reduce their lifespan, but eating too little protein can slow down nymphal development and female reproduction. Now, the bulk of these studies that have been done previously mostly focused on laboratory rear German cockroaches. So we're not really looking at cockroaches in the field that may behave differently. We've mostly been looking at cockroaches that were um, in the lab. And what they found was that when given the choice, these laboratory rear cockroaches tend to prefer a diet with a protein to carbohydrate ratio falling somewhere between a one to two and a one to three ratio. So about 50% protein in many cases. Now, there have been some studies that did use field collected populations to evaluate dietary preference, but only one of those studies actually looked at German what German cockroaches may eat in an occupied apartment. So that's kind of the closest that we can get to a real life pest control scenario. And this specific study really only focused on nymphal cockroaches. They were only looking at one uh, developmental stage. So now that kind of catches us up to this study that I'm covering today. The main goal of the study for the paper that I'm covering was to compare dietary preferences of cockroaches in the lab and then those that were out in the field. And not just in the field, but they were actually going to test and evaluate uh, dietary preference in the field setting. So in these, in these uh, inhabited apartments. What they wanted to test was if wild field collected cockroaches would self-regulate their diet, so make different changes on based on what they were eating, uh, to find a balance between that protein carbohydrate ratio that would ultimately help to maximize their uh, development. And what they hypothesized or what they predicted was that these field collected cockroaches would indeed kind of feed between different options to find that right balance. Because the idea here is that, or the assumption was that a field, field population probably doesn't have access to the same uh, optimal diet that we would typically feed cockroaches in a laboratory settings. In the lab, you want them to stay healthy and alive, so you give them the best stuff you can. Field cockroaches probably don't have access to that same thing. So to test this hypo these hypotheses, they, they conducted a few different experiments. First, they looked at, uh, they tested diet choice of wild cockroaches in occupied apartments by placing three pre-weighted bait stations in 13 different apartments. Um, so what they did was they weighed the bait stations beforehand, put them out there, and each of these bait stations had different ratios of protein and carbohydrates, and they came back the next morning, collected them, and then weighed them again. This gave them an accurate measure of how much food was consumed. Um, they also then collected cockroaches from each apartment of multiple different life stages. That gave them the ability to conduct the second set of experiments was to actually compare laboratory reared colonies, what they would feed on and how and what preference they had to these wild caught populations. And as predicted, what they found was that all life stages of the wild field caught German cockroaches self-selected for a more protein rich diet when compared to laboratory colonies. And they expected this again because they just assumed that these laboratory or the, the field caught populations probably didn't have access to the same optimal nutrition that say that laboratory colony would. Um, and they found that the total amount of protein-rich food consumed by each life stage differed. So basically, uh, different life stages may have consumed different um, amounts of protein uh, it, based on total food consumed. Um, uh, this made sense considering the likelihood that wild cockroaches, as I mentioned, you know, they would have a different um, deficit, dietary deficit. They also found that previously mated males preferred more protein-rich diets while non-gravid adult females, so females that weren't actively producing eggs at the time, um, ate the greatest amount of food, while small nymphs and gravid females fed the least, which is relatively expected and is something that we have seen in the past um, overall. 
So there's still a number of questions to address. Uh, this is a great example of a, a study that does not necessarily come out with a, a conclusion that's going to be something that we can translate right into, you know, helping to develop a better bait. But this is one of those foundational studies. Um, like I said, still a number of questions to address um, and uh, address more findings before they can really paint a full picture of when, how, and why dietary preferences can ultimately be affected in terms of uh, trying to identify those preferences for German cockroach populations. But still, ultimately, really important information helps to kind of advance our understanding of, of how dietary preferences may change uh, between life stages and populations. Because one ultimate thing they did find was between the different apartments, total number, the total volume of food consumed between apartments actually differed pretty considerably. So I'm pretty over on my time. So I'm going to stop now. A whole minute. Yeah. Ooh. Like, I'm not the official timekeeper, but I have 59... Five minutes, 59 seconds, Ooh. and 0.99. Oh, Not that yeah, I'm keeping even... track. <laughs> Negative yeah. 500,000 points. Well, when you're covering, uh, you know, real core science like this, Jim, sometimes you have to, uh, you have to steal an extra minute. So, you know, I concur with that. So outside of this, outside of the pest control industry, my degree is in cell and molecular biology. So when you start reading these titles and you start getting into it. I just want to learn more. But the entire time you were speaking, all I can think of is in these apartments, what is it? Is, is it like cereal? Is it the baking grease? Is it the stuff under my fridge that has the high and low protein? What specifically is it that they're eating on that is booming these populations? <laughs> I need to know, is it the little Debbie cakes that someone left out? <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's basically where they left off with this. I mean, one of the biggest things that they they address at the end is, look, there's a huge variation here in the total amount of food consumed. And and so they each one of those bait stations had a different ratio of protein to carbohydrates. And, you know, they said, like, there's a huge variation in the total volume of food consumed and, and all these different things. So there's certainly some other underlying factors that are impacting how much food they're eating, the, the ratios of food in between these different apartments, which means that there's a lot of other things that we need to start considering in terms of, you know, what baits we're putting out, how we're putting them out. And we know with ants that we change protein to carbohydrate baits depending on, you know, developmental cycle and things like that. Well, I mean, this this could indicate that there may be a need there to start considering things like that and developing a baiting program for cockroaches. Yeah, I'm all about this. If I can point out something to a customer that says, hey, maybe don't have that in your kitchen, <laughs> that'll yeah. deter the German roaches from eating or hanging out in your apartment. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice job, Mike. Yes, Mike. Great job. But are you ready to be demolished? I believe I am second here. Oh, I've rendered Mike speechless. That is, Ooh. that's never happened before. I was being polite. <laughs> All righty. That's a first. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't asked. I'm going to go ahead and keep my fingers crossed that Brody Brothers does a lot of commercial work here. Um, because today I have chosen a paper out of the Journal of Stored Products Research and the title is Assessment of Factors Influencing Visitation to Rodent Management Devices at Food Distribution Centers. And so this was done um, by Bobby Corrigan's, one of the authors, um, but by Matt Fry out of New York um, with a couple of other pest control companies and authors as well. 
So a food distribution warehouse, these are really large warehouses where essentially bulk items of, you know, packaged food is stored and then they ship them out, distribute them to local retail facilities like your Walmarts and your grocery stores. So those are the facilities we're talking about. And if you work in these facilities and if you are audited, if your pest control services are audited at these facilities, there's a good chance that you follow the auditing body rules where they space devices um, indoors by about 20 to 40 feet. So traps are usually in the interior are spaced 20 to 40 feet and the exterior stations are spaced about 50 to 100 feet apart. So for this paper, they wanted to look at this spacing and investigate the the effectiveness of this conventional standard interval trap placement. So it's either usually by auditing bodies or it's like companies SOPs, or it's just, hey, this is the way we've done it. So we're gonna continue to do it this way, but is this really the most practical best method? These researchers wanted to find out. And so they did this by um, evaluating different facilities. So they worked with a couple of pest control companies and they evaluated seven facilities in New York, five facilities or, you know, big warehouses in Ontario, Canada. And again, they use passive multi-catch traps indoors and mouse and bait stations with rodenticide were placed outside. And all of the facilities, just like I mentioned, utilize the standard spacings of these traps in the interior. And then uh, the researchers noted characteristics of the building like construction, ecological conditions that would potentially be attractive to rodents. So some examples of these characteristics uh, included the dock door not having a compression seal or the bottom of the door just not being rodent proof, if the device was near a product aisle, um, if there was a heat source, if there was uh, the devices were placed close to a drop ceiling, and so those are just some examples. The researchers actually noted 76 different, different characteristics uh, indoors and then 27 characteristics outdoors for every trap placement. So they basically walked around with a clipboard, noted all these characteristics to say uh, eventually like, hey, if you place a trap here uh, out of the 10 characteristics we noted, this would make this a better trap placement. So the researchers discovered that about half, so 45% of interior devices captured mice and about 56% of exterior base stations had some evidence of rodent feeding. And now these facilities all had some type of rodent activity, so they should have been having trap catches essentially or some evidence of feeding. Not surprisingly, they found that certain structural characteristics or conditions resulted in more trap catches or more rodents coming and feeding on the base stations. Uh, so, and when we think about this conventional spacing, uh, where we get these numbers and how we typically have done this in the past, that came out of the 40s and 50s. And that was based on the range that rodents foraged, but it didn't really think about rodent behavior and where rodents typically hang out in, in uh, buildings. So the researchers are basically proposing a more assessment-based approach. So instead of just, hey, this is where we typically space them, let's actually do an inspection and let's figure out where rodent activity is happening. 
Uh, so for instance, characteristics that resulted in higher rodent activity included areas with warmer temperatures, along pathways near concrete walls, on the edges or corners of walls, right? Because that's where rodents are going to follow along an area and you can find their pathways typically near dense vegetation and in shadows because rodents like to be in protected darker areas. Uh, and something else to consider when we're putting out these, these traps is the abundance of rodenticide that's thrown away. So if you're throwing out and just maintaining these traps on a monthly basis, uh, we may be throwing out a lot of rodenticide that isn't necessary with absolutely no feeding. So about 40% of the bait blocks in these facilities had no feeding. And so if we did a more assessment-based approach, we did an inspection, we found activity, we found areas where rodents are actually going to be, then essentially we would be eliminating about 40% of waste. And that's what I have. Thank you. Wow. So this is so interesting. And I know I'm, I work with Brittany, so I'm already you know, a little biased towards her, but the introduction that this, you said, Bobby Corgan was involved in writing this article. So that is my, one of our owners, Levy Brody, that is his hero. So <laughs> mine too, girl. I was name dropping. <laughs> so that's like I know if he were grading this, his mind would be made up. Jim wouldn't even have to go at this point. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, Bobby Corgan is involved. Go ahead and get crown. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we saved the best for last. So Jim, just no pressure. I like I like the way you introduced me there. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, um, so let's get started here. Uh, my, the title of this paper is The Effect of Vegetation on the Abundance of Tick Vectors in the Northeastern United States, a review of the literature. Um, this, uh, this paper was published in early June in the Journal of Medical Entomology, and it was written by uh, Daniel Matheson and his colleagues at Columbia University which is in New York, which is where Bobby Corrigan lives. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll do whatever I can to win. Kevin Bacon, the six degrees of Bobby Corrigan. <laughs> this does this, not affect this, his five minutes. No, it doesn't. <laughs> this paper is a little bit different from the research papers that I've selected in the past in that it is um, a literature review. Um, so this is the kind of paper I think can be especially useful for people in the pest control industry who are interested in getting a broad overview of a specific entomological topic. It's essentially like a term paper that you might have written in high school or college, and it consists of an exhaustive review of the existing literature on a very specific topic. Um, and it's a good way, like I said, to get this broad overview without having to read all of the published research. So in this case, the authors were interested in determining if they could figure out what specific habitats each of the four disease carrying ticks that we most commonly encounter preferred uh, based on previous research that had been published. So the authors reviewed the existing literature to identify which ticks were associated with what habitats uh, based on the original author's descriptions uh, and their tick sampling locations. Uh, so as you know, tick abundance has been increasing over the past century. And the authors cite lots of different factors, um, including climate change, reforestation, and changing wildlife populations. 
three tick species are recognized as posing the highest risk to human health, in, at least in the Northeast. And that's the Lone Star Tick, the American Dog Tick, and the Black-Legged or Deer Tick. Uh, the Lone Star Tick vectors multiple illnesses to humans, um, uh, not the least of which is that its saliva has been linked uh, to alpha-gal syndrome, which whose symptoms actually include allergies to red meat. The American dog tick, of course, is is um, familiar to anybody who has pets. That's the vector of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as well as multiple other disease-causing pathogens. And of course, the deer tick or the black-legged tick is the vector of Lyme disease. Um, more than 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported to the CDC here. Uh, but the CDC actually estimates that the actual number of new cases in the U.S. is closer to a half a million. The authors also looked at habitat information for the Asian longhorn tick, which is a recent arrival. It's an invasive tick that's rapidly spreading throughout the U.S. And although the tick hasn't been implicated in human disease transmission here in the U.S., it is considered a disease vector in its native Asian range. So it's important to note that different tick species prefer different habitats based on the tick's vulnerability to desiccation or drying out. And ticks can spend up to 98% of their life off of their host and can survive for many months, even almost to a year without feeding. Uh, so since they're susceptible to drying out, the micro habitat humidity levels can uh, vary. And that's what they're going to be dependent on based on vegetation and soil composition. So here's what the authors learned as part of their review. The black-legged tick is a forest dweller. They found at least 10 studies that found higher population densities in forests than in grasslands or in open canopy habitats. Um, and they found no studies finding the reverse of that. Um, so based on the review, deer ticks seem to prefer dense uh, shrubby forests rather than open habitats. And they also are less likely to be found in pine forests. The Lone Star Tick, on the other hand, was a habitat generalist. It's found in both dry forests, uh, wet forests, coniferous forests, grasslands, no preference for any of these things. And the Lone Star Tick is known to be able to survive in dry habitats, uh, drier habitats than the deer tick because of its waxy cuticle that inhibits water loss. Uh, the Lone Star Tick also is a tick that actively seeks out hosts compared to the ambush strategy employed by deer ticks. The American dog tick, on the other hand, is a field dweller and is most commonly found in grass or underbrush, rarely in the forest. Um, and it's found in highest densities on field edges and along trails, and they're highly tolerant of dry conditions. The Asian longhorn tick, on the other hand, is still an unknown. It was first detected in the U.S. in 2017 in New Jersey. Um, and the literature reveals that it's both found in both forest and grasslands. But what's most interesting about this tick is that it can be found in high densities, even in well-maintained lawns, which is a place where these other ticks are not typically found. So the authors uh, indicate that more data is needed to kind of fine tune these habitat associations. Um, but this can be extremely helpful for PMPs who are out educating consumers and developing tick management programs. Uh, because they can better understand where each of these tick species are most likely to occur. And by better understanding where ticks are found, PMPs can better evaluate the relative risk of tick infestations on a property. That's it. Well, that was super I, informative. That was five <laughs> minutes and 27 seconds. Oh, yeah, I know. I was a little over. No, I got 
four fifty six. Oh. No, 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 don't just just because he decides the first thirty seconds are a, a nod to Bobby Corrigan, that still counts. If you choose <laughs> no, you to suck to up for thirty that seconds, answer. that is still thirty we seconds. We said we you would get the, title the judge said that I would give him a pass. <laughs> All right, there you go. Sam says goes. No, this is crazy. When I think about ticks, and I explain it like this to customers because we deal with the dog tick and things like that here in Maryland. When I talk about ticks to customers, I'm always like, you remember the little green alien in Toy Story and they're in the claw machine and they're like, the claw, and they just stick up their arms. That's what ticks do. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and awesome. I always get a good laugh and a sale out of the customer. But <laughs> I love your article and how it was talking about, you know, how they can be in dry areas and 98% of the time they're not hanging on a host and that's what they're doing. They're just waiting and watching. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what really was interesting to me is that I kind of had in my head, I mean, I thought it was like a known, like ticks are found in, you know, what I call transition areas. So like, you know, where the grass, the well-cut grass meets the, the forest, that's probably going to be where you're going to find ticks. And once you get into the forest, into these natural areas, I just kind of assume that, you know, it's like, whatever, you might pick up some tick and it never it seriously never occurred to me that different ticks prefer very specific different habitats within, you know, within a, you know, a, a location. And so it makes sense. The tick that I typically see and pull off my dog and me is American dog tick. That's because we're typically walking like along the, like along the road where the grass is hanging over and it's, it's American dog tick habitat as opposed to deer ticks, which you're going to find deep in the woods. So really cool stuff, actually. Surprising, and I think could be really useful. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure if it's worldwide or within the United States, but I think there are over 850 species of ticks total. Uh, it's a pretty outstanding number, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, they're, they're uh, it's, it, and they're becoming more and more of a problem. You know, I didn't say it, but one of the interesting things about, um, you know, the resurgence in ticks over the last century. They talk about how tick abundance has increased. And that's what we hear. You know, you see in the news, people are talking about, is this like a bad year for ticks? And it's yes. Um, and over the last century, ticks have become more prevalent. And one of the things they point to is reforestation, which is not what we typically expect. We think of deforestation, but reforestation, especially of these like old, um, you know, farms that in the 18, you know, 1800s were the forests were cleared to make, you know, you know, dairy fields. And now those are being reclaimed by the forest. And maybe there's some, you know, neighborhoods that are in there. But a lot of with the elimination, of a lot of those family farms, those places are reforested. There's more deer than ever. Uh, and so there's more tick habitat than ever. So it's just like it's just counterintuitive, all these things. Hmm. It's very interesting. Right. I didn't know that. Um, so the pressure's on. Oh, all right. Well, we had one of my favorite pests talked about. Um, so <laughs> I'm a little partial because this is one of my favorite pests to talk about with customers, with my team here at Birdie Brothers as well. But I have to say the nerd of the week or the month has to go to Michael Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, surprise, but I love German cockroaches. <laughs> as crazy yeah. as that is to say, they're very much like ants to me. They're a hard pest to get rid of. So any little tidbit of information that I can gather, I'm like, yes, I'm holding on to that forever. And that was awesome information. 
Well, Sam, I really appreciate that. You're obviously, uh, you know, very highly qualified and skilled in everything that you do, including picking a winner for uh, for the Bug Bites podcast. Yeah, I got I got to say it's very funny um, because I think Brittany spends more time researching the likes and dislikes of our future guests than she does picking an article, so that way she can try to pander to them. So I, I'm very happy. Me. I would to like hear. to counter. I I get a few seconds here, please. <laughs> I do not. Okay. But I don't ask the guests. It is a personal relationship that I have with the guests. I'm already aware of their business. So you guys should uh, socialize with the guests more often and know them. And then you'll be prepared. But I didn't know about German roaches, Sam. <laughs> and now um, I'll still go to the bar with you at Pestrel, but I'm going to be a little bit salty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we can poke fun at when she chose this article, though, I think Brittany remembered yesterday that she had to choose an article for today. A hundred percent. I definitely, Sam was like, okay, well, we'll talk on the podcast tomorrow. And I was like, oh yeah, crap, the podcast. I better go read a paper real quick. <laughs> all right, let's not pull the curtain back too far. We don't, we don't want everyone to know all the, no, <laughs> listeners, we spend months researching and finding these articles in preparation for this. These are absolutely not selected the day of the, the, the recording, I promise. <laughs> well, speaking of pulling back the curtain, um, what our listeners don't know is that I completely fouled up the introduction to this particular podcast earlier and got Sam's name wrong. So uh, maybe we'll have a bloopers reel someday, uh, but I think that might have also, uh, that might have counted against me. So sorry again about that. Yeah, one strike there. That was fine. But, you know, you yeah. brought up Bobby Corgan. You sort of regained yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that says about us that, what, six, seven episodes into this and we've already got enough for a blooper reel. <laughs> you guys are professionals. <laughs> That's right. Now, we are professionals. We get paid to do this. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's a scary thought. <laughs> hey, so Sam, this was a ton of fun today. Um, we really do appreciate you being on. Um, we hope maybe someday we'll be able to have you back and I will properly research my topic to include both Bobby Corrigan and German cockroach references. Um, but really, thanks so much for being here. We really do appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a blast, guys. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. So that's a wrap for another edition of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. And if you're interested in more information and you want to take a deeper dive into any of the research that we featured, head on over to npmapestology.com where you can find several blogs on the research that we talk about in this podcast and be sure to give it a follow. Absolutely. And be sure to like and follow the podcast so you don't miss the release of a next episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. MPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science news and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in the episode, as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting mpmapestworld.org. Don't hit the stop button just yet. I have some breaking news for all the podcast listeners and some really fun bonus content at the end for you as well. First, the breaking news. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far and you would like to see in person how we pull one of these episodes together, we are going to be recording a live episode of MPMA's Bug Bites podcast at Pest World 2021 in Las Vegas. So if you're planning to attend Pest World 2021, be sure to check the program for the time and location of where we're going to record the episode. 
We are so incredibly excited about the chance to interact with a live audience for the episode, so we really hope you can join us. Okay, on to the bonus content. Earlier in the episode, you may have noticed that we referenced a few bloopers and outtakes uh, that happened during the recording. Well, we decided to throw those bloopers in as some bonus content at the end of this episode. I do want to point out that all of the bloopers just happen to involve Jim, but I can promise you that all three of us have enough outtakes and bloopers over the last couple episodes to fill our own individual episodes. So this isn't just picking on Jim. All right, enjoy. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites. I'm one of your hosts, Jim Fredericks, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Brittany Campbell and Mike and, Bentley. And Mike Bentley, exactly. Um, I stepped on you. Sorry about that. We're joined today by our very special guest, Samantha Brody. Uh, Samantha, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Samantha, thank you for having me. Samantha Forrest with Brody Brothers. Yeah, let's not do that. Let's start all over. I apologize. <laughs> like Forrest Gump. Step, run, Forrest, run. I won't run. step on you, hey, Mike. Samantha, uh, I want I, you to remember who didn't get your name. He doesn't know your name. Yeah. I know that we've never had the chance to meet, but as a first uh, impression, I would probably be able to to get your name right. So, I mean, it's I, I would say that's a ding for Jim. You're right. Uh, on the notepad, I'm writing down but, X1 for Jim. <laughs> That's terrible. We need to start over. This couldn't have gotten any better. I'm That's hoping. not better. It's not better. It's not better. That was like a like an inside my brain typographical error. It's fine. We're all Mike family here. Me, I mean, it's okay. Mike sends me a thing that says, X, our special guest XXX. And that's not good. <laughs> so that's a wrap for another edition of NPMA. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Like I said, it's amazing that we've got a full blooper reel and we're like six episodes in. 